Um, good evening. And um, as Marcy said, uh, this is the first of a five-week series uh, that a group of five of us are doing. Uh, we're all participants in the uh, Spear Rock Community Dharma Leader Program. So each one is taking a, uh, each one of us is taking one of them. Um, so Buddhist practice falls into uh, three general categories: uh, wisdom virtue, and meditation. The Buddha said that um, suffering comes from craving and that by following the Eightfold Path, you can be free of that craving that causes all the suffering. And the Eightfold Path, he divided into these three categories. The category of wisdom, or panna, it refers to our understanding of the cause of suffering, understanding that all the suffering that we experience comes from wanting things to be different than they are. The second part of the path, the virtue part of the path, is based on our understanding of, of uh, what causes suffering. We want to live a life that is free of suffering, that helps us uh, uh, not cause any more suffering. and. If we live a life that is um, according to um, aligned with uh, trying to be uh, make ourselves happier, then we're able to settle in meditation more, which is the third part of the path. If you spend the day um, lying and cheating, robbing banks, you know, you sit down and meditate. You know, you're not going to get very settled. So the path feeds itself. The understanding uh, gives you the intention, the desire to live a life that's uh, aligned with your values. And living that way lets your mind settle and be happier, which lets you train your mind in meditation and lets your concentration increase. And then your wisdom can develop even more. And then your ability to let go of your, cling of your clinging um, is enhanced. Um, so the, the five precepts are the heart of virtue and they're not meant to be commandments, they're meant to be uh, training guides, training rules. They're not an absolute, do this, don't do that. They're really a way, the purpose of the precepts is to make you happy. That's the main core of the precepts, is, is to live a life that makes us happier and happier. Um, the precepts, just to make sure, you know, we all know what the five of them are. The first one is to restrain from killing. And um, the positive side of it is to have reverence for all life. Uh, the second one is um, to refrain from stealing, uh, refrain from sexual misconduct, refrain from lying, and to refrain from using intoxicants that cloud the mind. Um, so we're going to, um, we'll be focusing on the very first one tonight. We ask ourselves with the precepts, does this action lead to increased suffering or increased happiness? That's how we decide what we do in our lives. Um, it's a very practical approach that's not conducive to guilt. When you see things that's right and wrong, uh, it tends to uh, 
which is the way most Western religions are. They just kind of divide the world into right and wrong. So you do something wrong and now you feel guilty. And guilt is the opposite of what Buddhism teaches. Guilt causes suffering. Guilt makes you unhappy. So guilt is absolutely contraindicated in Buddhist practice. Um, so the precepts, again, are seen like a training. And it's just like uh, you learn anything else, like playing the piano. You learn by failing. Over and over again, you hit the wrong note, you get the timing wrong, and you get better and better. But that's the nature of the precepts. And so it's really important when we look at the rules that we want to live by, the guidelines we want to live by, we're not going to always meet them. And how we hold that is a huge part of our practice. One of the really um, important parts of the precepts that happens, for instance, um, uh, let's say you have, you know, you have uh, flies in your house, you know, and you've decided that you're not going to kill flies. And, you know, the flies like kind of hovering around you and really annoying you, you know, and your instinct is to, you know, swat it, right? And if you hold back in that moment because you've decided to take this, this uh, training to not kill, and you hold back, and you can watch your mind in that moment, your mind is just like so badly just wants to, you know, and, and that's a really precious time to really understand what the precepts are about. They sh- they're like a mirror of what's really going on inside you, things that you would never notice if you just, you know, swat it and then go on. The the training rules offer us a powerful form of protection. Primarily, they they protect us from ourselves, from the suffering that we cause others and, and cause ourselves. The primary imperative of the precepts is to do no harm of all the precepts and to act out of compassion. Uh, They should not be a rigid ideal that we live by. You know, they shouldn't make us narrow-minded. They shouldn't make us calloused. We should always keep in mind, is what I'm doing causing any harm, including how I'm viewing the precept? Um, For instance, you know, we may personally choose um, not to drink alcohol. And, you know, that's one of the precepts, is not to... um, uh, not to take intoxicants to cloud the mind. So I may choose, you know, I'm not going to, you know, drink any alcohol at all. Uh, but if I view other people who drink alcohol in any way as less than, or uh, if I'm righteous about it, I'm actually causing both myself and the other person harm. So the quality with which all these precepts is is a really essential part of the practice. Um, Any time we think we've got, we're doing it the right way, we're causing harm. Living with the precepts um, is an act of generosity. Uh, it's a gift to everyone we encounter. People are safe with us. The one other thing the Buddha said um, about the precepts, he said that um, once you reach a certain level of awakening, it's impossible to break the precepts. They really will come naturally at a heart that's free. 
Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start with the very with the first one. And um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the trolley car dilemma. Um, it's a um, it's a philosophical question that's uh, often um, uh, discussed, um, and it was recently the basis of a study uh, where they um, hooked up people to an MRI while they uh, thought about this dilemma, and they you know wanted to see what parts of the brain would react uh, during this. So um, the moral dilemma that was used is um, suppose your driver of a runaway trolley car and it's approaching five men who are working on track on this track A okay and it's it's about to kill them you know it's just a terrible tragic accident but you have the chance you know you're you're the conductor you can um, make it switch tracks and switch go to the next track on that track there's only one worker and they're going to get killed it's you, but you have that choice what do you do so how many would uh, do nothing? <laughs> what? Um, and how many would switch to the second track? Most of you? Okay. So now, um, the second choice that we're going to consider, the alternative, is um, suppose instead of being the conductor of the, of the car, of the trolley car, um, you're now standing on a cliff right next to it, and um, you see from above this trolley car careening down, about to run over these five people. But the person standing right next to you is this huge, big guy, really tall, large guy. And you can tell that if you just push him over, you know, it's going to save those five people. What do you do? Okay. Okay, how many of you are going to push him over? Okay. You know, so, you know, in essence, you know, the, it's the same thing, you know. It's, you know, you're, you're taking one life and saving five in both ways, but one's up close and personal. And what they found when they, um, when they checked your mind in, uh, with the functional MRI, uh, they were able to see that on the first one, it involved a part of your brain that's just calculating. On the second one, it involves your emotions. You know, that, that makes sense. Um, but what does it say? You know, what the researchers said is that uh, our emotions affect our ability to make decisions a lot more than we think. Um, and the, what happens is that people who we see, who are close to us, mean a lot more to us. We're hardwired for that. We're hardwired to prefer family over strangers. That's just the way we're born. Our emotions are that way. And, you know, one of the things we notice with, the, with media, for instance, you know, you think of a country you've never heard of, you just kind of read some disaster somewhere, but all of a sudden you see in the front page of Life magazine this, this child in, in agony, and all of a sudden there's a connection and it gets your emotions and becomes more real. Um, so this hardwired thing, it's, it's a conditioned part of our minds. It doesn't mean that that's what we need to live by. It's an important thing to recognize about ourselves. Um, all our conditioning is hardwired. Craving is hardwired. You know, we want 
We want to grab what tastes good. We want to push away what doesn't feel good. That's all hardwired. That hardwired way of being, that conditioned way that, you know, we want to only love the people who are pertinent to us, you know, those are the ones we want to care about. All that is, is really part of the same mechanism of craving, of, of naturally wanting, you know, what works for us. And it's not um, what's necessary for freedom. So we need to see beyond our conditioning. Um, so thinking about killing, um, it brings to mind a friend of mine who was in Burma. You know, he was um, a monk in this monastery, very deep in the forest. And uh, where the humidity was so high that um, the sheets, when you wash your sheets, they never dried. And, you know, the fungus was so prevalent, you know, it just grew everywhere, and particularly between the toes. And so the conditions in this monastery, uh, there was no running water in the kitchen. The hygiene was uh, pretty awful. And, you know, he said it was, you know, he had gone there to meditate, and he said uh, that it was really hard to meditate because the conditions were so intense there. Um, but, you know, he ordained, he was a monk, you know, and in, in the monasteries in Asia, they take um, the precept of not killing very, very earnestly. They don't kill any bug, no matter what. And so he was, had this nice little hut in the middle of this forest, and um, there was a... a trail of thousands and thousands of ants that made a pilgrimage, a constant pilgrimage to his toilet. Okay, so, um, you know, he had running water in his, you know, running flush toilet. And, um, you know, he was, you know, they didn't bother him, so he, he was just kind of living around them. But then he realized, whoops, you know, I made a precept not to kill. Every time I flush the toilet, I'm killing hundreds of ants, you know. So, he went to his teacher, you know, and the teacher um, said, absolutely, do not, you know, do not kill the ants. You know, it's breaking the precept. Uh, and he suggested he take a brush, and before he had to flush the toilet, that he, you know, kind of catches them all, and then flushes the toilet. And um, so he went, you know, he went and started doing this practice. He felt really irritated, annoyed resentful, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, it's like, you know, just what you want to do, you know, pick up that toilet brush and, and do this. And but what was really interesting, you know, he was hardly meditating at all because it was so hard to meditate. But every day, it, it just start, his annoyance and irritation towards the ant, towards doing this, started lessening, and he started relating to the beingness of the ants. He started actually beginning to see that these are just, you know, fellow living beings on this planet with him. And slowly through this process of not killing, uh, his heart just opened tremendously. He, he said when he came back that that was the most valuable part of this whole, you know, I think he had spent four months in Burma um, meditating. And uh, that's what uh, touched his heart. So it's a very powerful practice to um, stop that impulse and really allow something else to blossom. Um, Refraining from killing 
uh, extends into many of the choices we make in our lives. The interpretations of this precept vary very widely among different Buddhist schools, among uh, different Buddhist teachers, and um, they're actually a place of tremendous controversy. And um, it seems like such a simple thing, you know, don't kill, but it just has so many um, nuances. For instance, um, does the first precept ask that uh, we don't go to war? Um, is there a just war, a justified war? Um, does it demand that we be pacifists? Uh, different Buddhist countries, you know, have militaries. Um, uh, the, um, in fact, um, the Japanese Buddhism uh, was really um, shaped by the military in Japan. Um, the Buddha told his monks, if we go back to the very oldest writings of the Buddha, he told his monks that it was okay to defend oneself, uh, but not with the intent to kill. So if somebody's coming at you, it's okay to do what you need, as long as you're not trying to kill them. Um, many have blamed the success of the tragic invasion of Tibet on the, uh, you know, on Buddhist pacifism. So many people have said, you know, this pacifism, look at the horrible thing that happened there from being pacifist. Um, I asked um, um, an Ajahn, who's the fourth monk, um, if he would ever kill. You know, I use the example that a lot of people use. If you had a chance to kill Hitler before he did everything he did, you know, would you do it? And he said, under no circumstances that he would do everything in his power to stop him, but except for, for killing him. He would, do, he would try, but, that, but he would not do it. Um, so people in the Buddhist world have very uh, diverse places where this issue sits with them. One, when one of the Buddhist monks went to an executioner and... Um, told the man to uh, kill his victims uh, with compassion because they used to torture them to death. So he said, okay, don't torture them to death, but uh, do it with one stroke and don't, you know, be compassionate. And the Buddha in this, in this story um, kicked him out because he said, even, you know, even though he's saying to be more compassionate, he's still condoning killing and we shouldn't be condoning killing. Um, you know, so the question is, does offering humane uh, forms of killing make it easier to kill? For instance, um, you know, if we look at the death penalty, you know, is it easier to stomach if somebody's um, being killed by lethal injection than if they're being, um, you know, decapitated? You know, does society, um, you know, we, we say, yes, it's a more humane way to do it, but if it does it have the effect of making it more acceptable, saying it's okay to kill people, you know, because it's not so bad. Um, Mahatma Gandhi said, I object to violence because when it appears to do good, the good is only temporary. The evil it does is permanent. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh takes the precept one step further. 
he rewrites it. Um, this isn't from the suttas, but Thich Nhat Hanh has always had a very creative way of uh, writing the precepts. I, I don't know if everybody knows who he is, but he's a, a very wonderful Vietnamese monk who, who was very active in the 60s um, in speaking out against the war in Vietnam. And you know, he's done tremendous work in the orphanages in Vietnam. He was exiled from his country because he was helping both sides. And, um, you know, he's just this incredible um, uh, open heart. So what he wrote about the first precept is, Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I undertake to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. So that's uh, pretty, uh, pretty big. How we speak about death and killing can greatly affect our attitudes. Sometimes um, language um, our, our culture in the West um, is often a culture of denying death. So we use a lot of euphemisms in talking about death. You know, we say, we don't say this person died. We say he passed away, he's gone, um, big, went into the big sleep, uh, bit the dust, you know, kicked the bucket, uh, gone to the other side. You know, we have this, this way of not wanting to actually admit that people die. The media tends to do this um, uh, a lot. It uses words like ethnic cleansing instead of genocide. Uh, we dehumanize the enemy. Uh, politicians often use language of like exterminating bugs in relating to, um, to the enemy. Um, Hitler spoke of Jews as bacteria, as a disease. Reagan referred to um, the communist cancer. Um, we speak of collateral damage. So the languaging that we use, uh, the lack of honesty um, in the way we speak about these things, I think affects the way we are able to really look at things honestly. In the West, the higher level of being um, that is being killed, the more we tend to use euphemisms. For instance, we, can, we kill ants, but we euthanize a pet or a horse. We don't value cows much in our culture, so we butcher them. We slaughter them. So, um, and I will switch to another um, controversial area. Um, some Buddhists are strict vegetarians. Some eat meat regularly. Some try to minimize how much meat they eat, but they do eat meat. Um, the Dalai Lama uh, said he wanted to be a vegetarian, but his uh, doctor told him that uh, his health couldn't take it. So he decided to compromise and to be a vegetarian every other day. And um, so at least half of his life, he's a vegetarian. So, 
in Burma and Thailand, most monks um, accept meat that is offered to them. In the monastic code, it's okay to eat meat as long as the animal wasn't killed for you. Um, in China, the monks tend to be vegetarian. In t- the Tibetan Buddhists tend to mostly uh, eat meat regularly. Um, in teaching about right livelihood, Buddha said that one shouldn't deal in meat production and butchering. We may not be killing the animal ourselves, but by purchasing, um, are we creating a demand for it? Are we indirectly asking someone else to kill an animal for us when we buy meat? Um, If we do eat meat for health or for whatever reason we might, you know, we might want to do that, um, is it good to minimize how much meat we eat in terms of um, causing less harm? Do we consider the suffering of um, factory-farmed animals? Uh, Do we choose free-range chicken if we're going to, you know, uh, animals that suffer less, that have better lives? Um, meat byproducts are all over the place. You know, some vegetarians uh, don't wear leather, um, but meat byproducts are found, you know, in gelatin made from calf's hooves, uh, cheese uses rennet from the stomach of animals, uh, Worcestershire uh, sauce is made from anchovies. Uh, meat byproducts are in a lot of um, uh, cosmetics, uh, different areas. Um, so, you know, it's not such a clear-cut thing that the precept tells you to do this and this is how we live our lives. Uh, the Buddha also spoke of the hierarchy of moral weight in killing, the effect of different forms of killing have on us. He said that the state of mind we're in affects the moral weight of the action, so that if we kill motivated by hatred or anger, it has a lot more moral weight than if we um, kill out of um, defending, you know, say, defending your family out of compassion for your family. Um, they also talk about that, you know, killing a large animal is, is, has more moral weight than killing a small animal. Uh, killing a good person, you know, um, a Buddhist teacher, right, uh, is, <laughs> has uh, more moral weight than um, killing a criminal. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the question is, you know, why do they even talk about this moral weight? You know, that we sort of resonate, like killing a parent, you know, is worse than killing a stranger. Um, and a lot of that is if we look at ourselves, how we would feel if we had to face, you know, if we, let's say we killed a parent in anger, which happens every day in this world. Um, how does that make us feel? You know, and I think that the, the level of damage internally is heavier than it would be killing somebody else who we didn't even know in anger. And they both create a lot of moral weight, but, um, you know, there might be something to that. Um, Another area of, of uh, controversy in, with this free, first precept is abortion. Um, 
the precept says not to kill sentient beings. But uh, most religions have to deal with um, the controversy of when does a being become sentient. Is the fertilized egg sentient? Is it a two-cell sentient, a ten? When does it become sentient? Um, an embryo doesn't look human until it's about, uh, doesn't have a human face until it's about eight weeks. That's when they call it a fetus, because now it starts looking like a person. Um, higher bra- brain function doesn't develop till the third trimester. Many believe that the fetus is not yet a fully embodied person. So how does this precept work? Um, if you feel that the fetus isn't, uh, um, it's just a bunch of cells, uh, the effect on you, uh, if you have an abortion, it's going to be, you know, it's not going to affect your life that much on an emotional level. Um, it's not a dilemma. You know, it's like, oh, it's just a bunch of cells. So you can do something like that out of convenience because it doesn't particularly, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a little traumatic, but it's not uh, a huge thing. But if you believe that the embryo is sentient, uh, then the question arises, is uh, abortion ever justifiable? And so this is the issue where, um, where a lot of, um, there's a lot of disagreement. Because some people say, of course, you know, you want to save for the life of the, mo- if, if it's uh, for the life of the mother, then abortion is justifiable. Um, how about for her health? not just for her life. How about um, because of the readiness of parents to raise a child? Or is it justifiable because of the population crisis? Um, but even if a Buddhist might decide never to have an abortion themselves, most believe it's an ethical issue left to the individual. Um, so, switching now to, de- you know, how do we deal with insects and animals that cause disease and destruction? Mosquitoes, termites, bedbugs, wasps, um, snails, slugs, cockroaches, ants, rats. Um, there's a very broad range how these precepts are practiced in Buddhism. Um, from absolutely never ever killing to killing only for compassionate reasons. Uh, killing mosquitoes, for instance, uh, prevents dengue fever, malaria, um, uh, African sleeping sickness from the tsetse fly. Uh, without those eradication programs, thousands and thousands of people would die. Um, so do we value the, the life of the mosquitoes more than we value the life of humans? How do we hold that? Rats can carry plague. Large populations have been devastated by that disease. They mul- rats multiply so quickly that in 18 months, two rats can have one million descendants. They can carry other disease. Uh, in poor, crowded environments, they actually nibble the, they'll, they'll eat the toes and fingers of, of young children. 
Um, at times the plague has killed two million people in one year. So, do we kill rats? At one monastery, actually the same monastery this friend was at, um, uh, you know, it houses like I think 800 monks, and um, the meditation hall has these mats, you know, they're like cotton mat, like made out of cotton. Well, the entire huge meditation hall, right, that can, that can um, seat, you know, 800 monks, uh, got completely infested by bed bugs. And um, they held to that very tightly. The monks, every day, one by one, picked the bed bugs out of there, alive, and took them outside. Uh, you can imagine how successful that was. <laughs> it, it didn't work, you know. Um, and I don't know if time and season, you know, um, you know, the problem went away by itself. I'm not. Sh- I really don't know. Um, you know, termites can destroy our homes. Do we let them? Um, practicing with this precept can help us stretch ourselves to look for new solutions or for less harmful solutions. Are the alternatives? If we need to kill, can we minimize harm? For instance, there are traps, you know, there are more humane traps. Uh, Sometimes being really strict in how clean we keep our kitchen can avoid a lot of the certain problems with ants, problems with cockroaches. Um, You know, do we take the extra time, because we care about this, to, um, to prevent the infestations? Um, do we take the time to get educated as to other options? Uh, for instance, with termites, you know, often you can do a local treatment that, that still kills, but only kills a little part, you know, uh, instead of doing the whole house. Um, practicing with the precept, um, you might want to, you know, it might, to you, it might mean that it's an absolute thing and you never kill, or it might mean to you that you just try to kill less. But by keeping it in your mind, in your heart, it makes you stop, slow down, look at that impulse to just get rid of it, just get rid of the problem, that automatic uh, craving that says, you know, uh, I don't want the unpleasant, let's, you know, let's get rid of this bug, let's get rid of this enemy, let's get rid of this problem. And it may be that we decide we have to take those actions, but... Um, but we can see, we can, if we have to take those actions, we need to do them out of a compassionate, peaceful heart. The next um, difficult area is euthanasia. Um, do you kill a suffering animal? Uh, how many of you have a pet? Do you have a pet? Yeah. So anybody who has a pet um, often, you know, will have to deal with the with the possibility of having to um, euthanize their animal, their, their pet. And um, when do you do it? And do you do it? You know, do you let the animal, do you say, no, I don't kill, and let that animal suffer, you know, needlessly? So, um, you know, my husband and I had to make that choice a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, it was a really hard decision. You know, first of all, we had to decide you know, what was the quality of a dog's life? 
you know, was it, you know, and, you know, we saw he was still liking to cuddle, he was still, you know, so we waited and waited until the quality of his life was such that um, he was suffering. And, you know, and the line that we used, were we uh, euthanizing him to end our suffering or to end his suffering? And, you know, when we, that was really clear for us, and we, we were able to make that decision. It was a painful decision, but, but it was a decision that felt, I felt at peace with. Now, many people, you know, that's very clear to them. They have no problem with the idea of euthanizing an animal. Of course they would do that, and yet they'll oppose people euthanizing people. That's sort of interesting. Um, um, the Buddha said he, he only approved of suicide for fully enlightened beings. He said that the only people who could um, kill themselves without craving were uh, enlightened beings. And therefore, um, if you kill yourself because you don't want to, you know, you don't like what's happening, that you're actually damaging yourself. Um, and it's sort of... Um, you know, I've read accounts of people who have undergone tremendous, tremendous suffering and in the process of dying. And in the midst of that suffering, um, they've had an amazing realization, an opening. And before they died, they said, God, that was so hard, but it was really, I'm so glad I went through it. So, you know, do we run away from pain from our suffering too quickly? Are we losing an opportunity to really um, experience uh, the full range of our life? Um, what about killing ourselves so as not to be a burden to our families, our friends? What about using machines? There's no consciousness to keep us alive. There's no right answer to these difficult questions. Only a dedication to answer them from a heart full of kindness, compassion, of not wanting to do harm, and with a desire to let go when we need to. The purpose of practicing, I I can't say this too much, the purpose of practicing with this precept is to be happy. And to figure out these um, dilemmas and how we want to live our lives in relation to these, um, it's really important to hold it with an open hand, without tightening into our belief and saying this is right. It's you know, um, and this is the way it has to be. So we often go for days or weeks without encountering any of these really difficult choices. So um, how do we practice with this precept? when none of this stuff comes up in our lives. And that's the flip side of it, the uh, acting with reverence, with reverence to all life. Um, a practice like that is, is a very transformative practice. Um, and one of the things that, one of the ways to look at that is, you know, um, when we go into situations, where often people are invisible to us, making it a practice of making them visible. 
for instance, you know, you often go into the supermarket, you may be rushed, and, you know, you just kind of walk by people, and, and down the aisle, you're totally focused, and you don't even see the person, you kind of, kind of shoved out of the way, or the person who's helping you back, or, um, you know, when you act with reverence to our life, you know, you start looking at people, am I valuing, you know, this person less? Like, for instance, let's say you're, um, you know, you take someone in their, a single woman in their 20s, right? And it doesn't matter how busy she is at the market, she'll notice any really cute guy, you know, you know, there. I mean, it just catches her eyes. So the people that are relevant to her are visible. And then maybe, um, you know, the little kid or the, um, you know, some elderly person that doesn't feel relevant in their lives, they just don't even see them, you know. And is that a habit that we have? Do we go to the bank and, you know, not notice the people there? Um, do we not, is there a group of people that we don't notice, that we don't relate to? You know, some people treat children like they're beneath their notice. Some people treat older people as they're, you know, beneath their notice. Some people treat people of different races. Or, you know, they see somebody, you know, with uh, a whole bunch of tattoos or somebody with, um, um, you know, too many nose rings or, you know, or di- different things, you know, um, uh, or people who don't speak the language or, um, and, you know, do we close ourselves uh, in any habitual way? Um, and then, you know, in terms of uh, the rest of life, you know, if we go for a walk, do, are we noticing the birds? Are we noticing the squirrels? Are we noticing the ant colony? Um, when we answer the phone, are we giving the person uh, on the other end of the line our full attention? That's reverence, okay? Let's say you're really busy and you really don't have time to talk, you're really rushed, and somebody calls and they want to chat, you know? And you don't have time, but can you tell them you don't have time, but still treat them with reverence, still treat them with care? Or if you call um, a stranger, let's say you want information or tech support, or do we remember that there's a human being at the other end of the line? They have joys just like we do, and they suffer just like we do. And... um, and the hardest part, Gandhi, um, I consider the hardest part for me, Gandhi wrote, to see the universal and all-pervading spirit of the truth face to face, one must be able to love the meanest of creatures as oneself. How do we relate to people we politically disagree with? Uh, do we close our hearts? What about people who cause great harm, you know, to people on the planet? How how do we feel towards them? Are we able to love the meanest creatures as oneself? Do we justify hating them? Do we see them as no longer worthy of our love? You know, the precept doesn't say that we're wrong for feeling outrage and anger towards a person who does cruel things. But can we incline our minds to, to still see them as a human being, to see someone who is damaged themselves 
What does it do to ourselves when we're hating someone who, who hates? Does feeling hatred ever make us happy? Martin Luther King said, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. That's quite um, quite a bar to open our hearts like that. So the, the last thing I want to mention is, um, you know, when we break a precept, you know, again, you know, I, it's important to remember why, why we practice this. Um, it's to make us happy, to eliminate suffering. It's really helpful to differentiate between guilt and remorse. Um, if you're walking down the street and, you know, you step on somebody's foot and they trip and they hurt themselves, you know, you sort of feel bad, you know, you know that, oh, well, you didn't mean to do it, and, um, and you're sorry that you hurt them, so it's a, it's a feeling that it hurts a little bit, you know, you have empathy for the person that they're hurting, uh, but that's it, and you let it go. You know, that's, um, uh, that's what, you know, this is just semantics, but it's, it's the concept that's important, you know, some people might, this is, this I'm calling remorse. Some people call this remorse. But if you were to, um, to do that, and then in addition to that, you say to yourself, oh, I'm just such a klutz, and uh, I can't do anything right, you know, and, and that's called guilt. Now you feel guilty. And the guilt is a very damaging thing, because you're either going to hold on to that guilt, and it will carry you throughout the day, oh, I was such, such a klutz, etc., or you'll internalize it. So it's very important to see the difference between those two qualities. Guilt causes suffering. Um, remorse says, I did something that hurt someone. I'm sorry it happened. Guilt says, I did something that hurt someone and I'm a bad person because of it. Um, the Buddhist said, you know, when touched with pain, the uninstructed person not only feels that pain, but they sorrow and grieve and lament, beat their breast and become distraught. And so now they have two pains. They have the physical pain and the mental pain. And he, um, he equates that to, you know, being struck by an arrow. You know, the physical pain is the first arrow, and that hurts. But the uh, mental reaction to it is the second arrow. And guilt is the second arrow. There's never a time for guilt. So I'd like to end this with a quote from Jack Cornfield from uh, the book Passive Heart. The basic precepts are not passive. They can actively express a compassionate heart in our life. 
not killing can grow into reverence for life, a protective caring for all sentient beings who share life with us. Not stealing can become the basis for wise ecology, honoring the limited resources of the earth and actively seeking ways to live and work that share our blessings worldwide. From this spirit can come a life of natural and healing simplicity. Out of not lying, we can develop our voice to speak for compassion, understanding, and justice. Out of non-harming sexuality, our most intimate relations can also become expressions of love, of love, of joy, and tenderness. Out of not abusing intoxicants or becoming heedless, we can develop a spirit that seeks to live in the most awake and conscious manner in all circumstances. At first, precepts are a practice. Then they become a necessity. And finally, they become a joy. When our heart is awakened, they spontaneously illuminate our way in the world. Thank you. So we have a few minutes if anybody has any comments um, or questions. Any areas you want to talk about that are particularly um, difficult for you? Um, can you talk about internalizing guilt? About internalizing guilt? Um, what would you like to know about it? <laughs> well, I, mean, I have, um, you know, my ideas about it, but if you can just, in one sentence, kind of define it or what you meant by it. Um, what happens is um, when we don't see ourselves and we judge ourselves, uh, and then we move on to the next thing, that judging ourselves kind of gets uh, repressed inside us. And um, it creates um, a physical reaction in our body. Uh, it creates um, a, a certain tension. Um, it affects our mood, but we don't see it. We don't see it. And then you do that over and over and over again, and it creates a very powerful personality pattern. Uh, and it's, uh, it's self-hatred. It's a, it's a, you know, that will pop up at all sorts of times unrelated to whatever the original event was. So, I... Yes. For the recording? Yeah, the, the recording, so the... And for yeah. people with the hearing assistance devices. Can I ask you to repeat that? <laughs> okay. Repeat what? Um, where, you, where you talked about uh, there's no I have no idea what I said, but, uh, <laughs> but what I'll say is that, um, you know, some people hold the precepts as a fixed answer. There's a lot of um, monks who, it's very absolute. Um, uh, the precept, from, from my perspective, is something that um, honors life, that comes from uh, wanting myself and other beings to be happy, and from seeing um, 
the world around me, from being connected with the world around me. So I'm not sure what I had said, so... <laughs> Um, any other comments? Yes. Uh, please use the mic because I, I actually I can't hear you either. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how it phrases, but um, if you had a, a child or uh, someone that you cared about, and they're walking along, say a river, and an alligator jumps up and swallows it, do they, if you kill that alligator, is it against the precept? Because alligators have been known in Australia to just jump out and swallow a person, a man. Um. It would be. It would be against the precepts. And, you know, the question that I would ask myself is, you know, we know where, where alligators hang out. You know, so we need to be careful, you know, and we need to not let the children wander, you know, in those areas alone. Um, but, you know, there's been like, for instance, villages in India, you know, for instance, where tigers would just come into the town and, and, and attack. So it wasn't like you were going into their territory. They were coming into, you know, your territory. Um, and, um, you know, they, they killed the tigers, you know. Whether that was uh, a wise thing, I don't know. Um, go ahead. I, you know, in my uh, shower, I've seen bugs, and I have to take care of myself to take care of my cat. There's just no other choice. So in that concept where you're trying to take care of yourself so you can take care of somebody who depends on you, who can't take care of himself like a cat, mm-hmm. what choice do you have? You do the best you can in doing the least amount of damage. That's how I see it. You know, for instance, um, you know, cats get fleas, and the fleas make them really miserable. You use flea medication, right, um, which, kills, which kills the fleas. You know, and... Um, you know, is there some medication that is less harmful to the fleas, that's less painful to them? Mm-hmm. You know, some, some flea medication um, might torture them, you know, and some flea medication works through uh, stopping the reproduction. So it doesn't really, it's not painful to them. They just can't have any more babies. So you make the choices, you take the time to get educated, to do the least amount of harm when you have to do something like that. That's um, yes, yeah, some you know. For me, it's a very it's a, it's a movable line, you know, of the skillful way of the choices we make. Um, some of the monastics, especially in the Tarbatan tradition, they are absolutists. They will not break that line for anything, you know. And so, you know, we have to, you know, it's it's. Um, you know, when I'm speaking of this, you know, you know, I mean, Buddhists are so different all over the world in relation to this. And I think that keeping the questions alive and caring about these, these things is, is what's really important. And, um, and, you know, just really trying to put our care into it over and over again. Well, I'm going to take this one step further. I contribute uh, to an elephant nursery um, 
where the elephant mothers have been killed by poachers. Yeah. And in that case, I, I tell you, I'd kill the poacher. Because I'm trying to keep these little elephants alive because they've lost their mothers. Because the poachers wanting the ivory. And I get really upset when I hear about things like that. Or, you know, the, the chimpanzees in uh, where during Goodall is, they take those little chimpanzees and they kill them and they sell them for meat. You know, um, it's a very, very painful thing that happens. It's a very painful thing that happens, you know, with, with the elephants, with the chimpanzees. But is the uh, hatred towards the poachers, is that, is that helpful in any, in any way? Can we stop them without killing them? You know, we don't have to kill the poachers to stop them. There's other ways, there's other means. And wanting to kill them, is that coming out, out of our own hatred? Uh, or is it, you know, it's not really a solution, a necessary solution. Well, it's coming out of a love for another animal. Right, but you have the love for the other animal, but you've closed your heart off to the poacher. They're a human being. You know, they're deluded human beings, suffering. Anybody who does that to an elephant, you know, any poacher has to be suffering. You can't treat animals that way and not be alienated and suffering. So it's a suffering human being. It's a deluded, suffering human being on this planet with you. Well, then, you know, I don't mean to get an argument about this, yeah. but they're doing for profit. They're selling yeah. it to uh, Japan, yeah. uh, who love ivory. Yeah. I, don't cons- I don't consider that deluded in the sense of non-mindful. I just consider it just profit-orientated. They well, they're deluded. Doing- what delusion is, is thinking that, that um, happiness is going to come from doing these things. That's what delusion is. Delusion is really not seeing the truth about where happiness really rests. And so they are deluded. They're deluded in, in that way. And, and um, um, they're not, you know, I, I think it's a horrible thing that they do. And I would go out of my way to stop them. But I don't want to suffer more by hating them. You know, it doesn't help me stop them, just by me hating them and wanting to kill them, stop it from happening. Does it help in any way? All of this, it makes me miserable. And it makes me actually less effective. You know, if I really focused on my, on being, on wanting to ease suffering, it's a, and it's a lot easier to actually take the right steps, get more involved in stopping them, in doing what steps can we do? How can we support this? What can we do to help? But for a peaceful heart, let's just actually act a lot more skillfully than a heart full of anger and hatred. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's time. Well, thank you very much.